Well, I hesitantly entitled this sermon, A Delightful Life, but felt I needed to spell it differently to change the sense a little. Why did I hesitate going from delightful to delightful? Something seemed wrong with the word delightful. I asked Ashley and she agreed. Yeah, it sounds like spring lambs or pretty flowers or colourful dresses, but almost too sweet, confected, fake. It might sound too good to be true if we've been around a little while. We aren't used to a life that never descends out of bliss and is delightful. I remember hearing of a comedian have a go at the Christian idea of heaven when it was described to him as a place where you are loved and love others perfectly. He said, well, that just sounds exhausting. In our broken world, from this valley of tears, as it's sometimes called, life can be tough. And so mere survival can become the daily focus. Just get through to the weekend. Just get through to the next holiday. And even that low survival goal can seem too hard. And so we struggle. As a 46-year-old, there are some days when I think, how on earth am I going to get through to retirement? Another 20 years at least. You might be older or younger than me, but you may also have chronic illness or a family situation that makes life barely bearable. A job that might be far harder than mine. How are we all going to make it? Well, friends, humans, I put it to you, were made for delight, not just survival. So what if delight were attainable? We could pursue delight and have survival happily just thrown in with delight. And so whether or not you are, as the hymn puts it, weary, worn and sad, this psalm wants to strengthen you today. Well, how then can we live in the real painful world with our responsibilities, trials and limits and yet live what we can truly say is a delightful life. Psalm 111 leads us to such delight from verse 1. The three English words, praise the Lord, translate the Hebrew word, hallelujah, as it says there in the footnote in the NIV. The rest of the psalm then explains why we would praise the Lord. And so together with Psalm 112, we see why praising the Lord is a very healthy and accessible thing to do. In the Hebrew language, the psalm's structure comes as an acrostic poem. That is, after the first hallelujah, each line then begins with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. And so you might call it the A to Z of reasons to praise God. What else does the alphabet contribute here? I take it it also aided in memorization. And so let's let the warm A to Z rays of truth just wash over us. And as we do, notice what's emphasized in the psalm, like the greatness of the Lord that's repeated there, the repeated appreciation for God's works, and the all and forever repeated language also. In other words, this is a psalm not aiming for moderation or half-truths. There are no limp sentiments in here. Nothing fake or confected is needed because the reality is far greater than words can express when it comes to the Lord and who he is and how praiseworthy he is. The scale of the truths and their implications 
are beyond comprehension, let alone measure or calculation. The subject is, after all, God. Of course it will be big. Anything less we should be suspicious of. It's going to be eternally significant and wonderful. First then, hallelujah, we read verse 1, praise the Lord. And when we know what hallelujah means in Christian songs, it makes those songs much more meaningful. All creatures of our God and King, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The author then leads well by example in that praise, yet you get the sense he would be praising God with or without others, and yet he does love gathered praise, as the rest of the verse says. I will extol the Lord with all, not reservedly, all my heart, that is my mind, my will, my innermost person. Alone, I will do that, but also, he says, in the council of the upright and in the assembly is where I love to do that. Last Sunday night, I returned home from a weekend teaching in Brisbane and I took Monday off. I was feeling tired, so I took Monday off to rest, to pray, to just spend time in God's word, to be present in God's presence, as I like to think of it, listening and and singing Christian music. And so, too, we as a community are brought together and and come together to praise God's name and and, uh, praise God together, as we saw in the book of Acts, as we see also in our church's membership vows. Just showing up in Christian gatherings is vitally important. Church is more than a social meeting. It's a time when we consciously encounter God and praise him together. And so you're not just making up the numbers today. You are supporting the praise of others as their praise also supports you in the congregation, as the psalmist puts it. So let one of our favorite words then, whether we're together or whether we're apart, be this heartfelt word of hallelujah. And as we do that, habitually, see if your attitudes and moods don't take a turn. Hallelujah is a word for the grateful. And this word, when lifted up, lifts our eyes and our hearts up with it. Is delight a cause or an effect of hallelujah? It's both. And employable for both purposes. That is, we can use hallelujah as a cause toward delight. But we can also use hallelujah as an effect of our delight, when you want to express delight. But David, some might rightly, understandably respond, you don't know my troubles. Or perhaps, you don't know my glass half-empty disposition. I've always been a worrier. That's the way I'm always going to be. It's hard for me just to hit the praise button and change. And you're right. Praise has to be inspired by something. So why praise the Lord? What's the inspiration? And here's why the A to Z of praise is so important. It gets us going. We praise him because, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. Great in design, in scale, in number, excellence, great in dignity. Great are the works, not mere theories of God or even the teachings of God at this point. No, Buddha has teachings. Ethics classes have teachings. But the true and living God is a God of word and deed. Great indeed is the Lord we praise. 
Great are the works of the Lord. And I love the next part. It's a statement of fact, but with a force of invitation and even challenge that they are, verse 2, pondered by those who delight in them. Statement, invitation, challenge. The challenge being, does today find you delighting in God's great work? Are you one of those delighting people? Are God's words works studied, as the ESV puts it, studied by you? Studied by all who delight in them? Like hallelujah, the benefit is wonderfully circular. If you are looking for an upward spiral in your life, as we all could be, those who delight are those who study in them, and those who study them find them delightful. Choose where you'd like to begin, Christian. Study or delight. One of my teenagers is studying history at school and uh, looking at the historicity, that is the historical reliability of King David. Uh, For many decades, King David was considered a myth by academics and sceptical scholars. But the more external evidence has been unearthed, the more we've realized that King David very much lived and reigned over ancient historical Israel. And so for my child, there was some delight in this realization during the school assignment. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Keep digging and you find more treasure and more reason for praise. Uh, I love this verse, and so when I was teaching theology at SNBC, This verse was the the motto for our course as we studied together. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Let's all be delighted theologians, DPC. Let's grow in this way. A statement, an invitation, a challenge. To live a delightful life. Feed on the truths of who God is. God who is known to us by what he has done before us, ahead of us, but all very much for us. Some of you might get excited by biology or politics or knitting or skydiving or travel or the things money can buy. What gifts they are, but the great news is that their capacity to deliver delight is no match for the source of them all. Science and the arts are good to study, but theology is good, is, is for good reason called the queen of the sciences. For those of us who love learning about the world, the 17th century Puritan, um, he was a pastor, poet, theologian, Richard Baxter. He reflected on this psalm, and it's provided for you in your service sheet, that the most holy men, the most holy people, are the most excellent students of God's works. And none but the holy can rightly study or know them. Your studies of physics and other sciences are not worth a rush, a read, if it be not God by them that you seek after. To see and admire, to reverence and adore, to love and delight in God, appearing to us in his works, and purposely to peruse them for the knowledge of God, This is the true and only philosophy, and the contrary is mere foolery, and so called again and again by God himself. That is, science is good, but science in itself doesn't go far enough. Science 
points to the wonder and the goodness and the power and the works of God. Yes, verse 3, glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. Lofty words again there, glory, majesty, righteousness forever. At church, we speak of these lofty, high things all the time, but they aren't exaggerations. On the contrary, human language can only ever understate the truths of God. The poverty of human language, fine for expressing human experiences and concepts, has only weak purchase on the divine. What theologians call the ineffable, these unspeakable realities. Even the meaning of the word praise that we saw in the first verse, praise the Lord, what does that mean? We only we, we have this word from human use. We praise a person or a king or a dog and we apply that to God. But what on earth, or, or more importantly, what on in heaven does praise mean when directed to praise God? The meaning can go to a new register. Human words are human signs employed in Scripture, in church, in your prayers for a job that is far beyond them. Yet God truly uses human language and servants, as verse 4 says, so that it can be said, he has caused his wonders to be remembered. And so Israel were always a people of the book, a people who recorded their history in detail, genealogies, stories, songs, poetry, wisdom rituals, uh, wisdom and rituals, all of which caused his wonders to be remembered. Even as we experience here right now, we are again remembering the Lord and his works. Next, we see the essential qualities God expresses when he wants us to know what he's like. Throughout scripture, this expression sometimes comes through at these times. Verse 4, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. You know, too many people imagine God merely to be a policeman in the sky. I take it that's because our consciences rightly point to that work of God who does assess and judge our lives according to what is right and wrong. But God is far more than a righteous judge. He's also far far kinder and more positively disposed towards you than you are able to imagine. He's full of compassion towards us and he has great consideration for your weakness and your frailty, for your daily need of him. Now, I feel loyal and gracious because I go for the West Tigers football team. They came 16th out of 16 teams this year. But I've decided I'm going to support them in 2023. Not because I think they're going to perform overly well, but it's going to be because of grace. My disposition towards them, regardless of merit. But what on earth, what in heaven is God's grace and compassion compared to these human, limited ways of understanding grace and compassion towards other people or towards football teams. Friends, when you are feeling next ashamed or guilty for something you've done or said, rather than just brushing it off, I encourage you to sit with it for a little while. Imagine yourself in tears, kneeling at the foot of Jesus' cross. And though it dares you, though it pains you, dare to make eye contact with this suffering servant, your sin bearer, who looks you in the eye 
and becomes all the more determined as he does to stay right where he is on the cross to finish his work for you. That's about the best image of God's grace and compassion you can get. But I, the Lord of Psalm 111, lay down my life for my friend, and you are my friend. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. And so, verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The Lord has an impeccable track record, unblemished, for keeping his promises, even to sinners like us. That's what the Old Testament's all about. That's why the failings, the ups and downs of Israel are recorded. DPC, the Lord might say, I'm saving you. Heaven is your home. I remember my covenant with you. My son is your righteousness. Though you may forget this promise, though you may fail me, Though you may fail to meditate on the covenant that I've made with you, this promise that if you trust in the Lord, you're mine forever. Though hallelujah may rarely spring from your lips, even still I will remember. And I delight that you are mine forever. The grace and compassion of the Lord for us. He remembers his covenant forever. And that covenant sweeps us up into it. And yet again and again and again, never because they deserved it, verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the land of other nations. Now, on this point, some people questioned the ethics of Israel's wars. When Israel drove out or killed occupying nations. But this concern is only ours if we set one part of Scripture against other parts of Scripture. That's never a good idea. That is to take the record of the history of Israel driving out nations and set that against the assurances of God's goodness and mercy and justice and kindness. God sometimes judges through the world, uh, the world through human hands, sometimes through a flood without human hands. And sometimes his judgment brings death. And the Bible doesn't claim anything different. And so we're to read the judgment of rebellious nations in verse 6 alongside the insistence of verse 7 that the works of his hands are always faithful and just. So I put it to you that you are braver or more foolish than I if you are willing to use God's word against him. Many a foolish sinner has with misplaced zeal accused of wrongdoing the only one in the universe with a holy and awesome name, as verse 9 reminds us. Of all the names to defame or slander, his holy name should never be among them. Verse 7 says, rather, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts, his teachings are trustworthy. And these teachings, verse 8, are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness, and righteousness. What he says he'll do, he'll do. And what he says is right is by definition right. As one author put it, his righteousness is honored in the eyes of the intelligent universe. His righteousness is honored in the eyes of the intelligent universe. Verse 9, he provided redemption for his people. He sure did in Jesus, as we know much more than the, the poet did at this time in history. He ordained his covenant forever, 
holy, that is other, in being, glory, in ethical purity, holy and awesome is his name. And so to to go through life saying, "I, I like the sun's warmth and light, but I dislike the sun, would be less silly than to live a life with God's kind provision without respect for him as the source. Like a stubborn child refusing a favorite meal if he's forced to say thank you for it. The delightful reality is that God is seen in his saving, righteous, holy works. And so, as the old hymn puts it, we can enjoy the way his works point so naturally to him. The hymn says, The birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass we hear him pass. Suddenly, and perhaps today is that day for you, your life's delight-filled chapters begin or go to a new level because it is dawning on you that God is wonderfully everywhere as you look around in his world. You may have barely seen the wonder of what has been staring you in the face all of your life. The scientist, the midwife, the surfer, the mathematician, the bus driver, the grandparent, the foodie. God's works sing of him wherever we look. I wonder, are you hearing the delightful symphony? John Calvin put it, There is not an atom in the world in which one cannot discern at least some bright sparks of his glory. There's not an atom of the world in which at least in which one cannot discern at least some bright sparks of his glory. Microscope or telescope, take your pick and praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Nature itself, of course, is not God, but as another theologian put it, the pure of heart see God everywhere. With such vision, how can we avoid delight and a million hallelujahs as we go through our lives? If in Jesus' day the mute hear themselves suddenly declaring God's praises, what's stopping us? If Jesus gave the blind eyes to see, will we not along with them rejoice with our spiritual sight? Without God, life was barely bearable. Mere survival is a reasonable goal. But with new eyes that see, life can be and is meant to be truly delightful, even through the toughest of trials. 4 verse 10, notice the connection between seeing God as he is and the new beginning it brings. The fear of the Lord, verse 10, is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning, I take it, in the sense of the first principle, but also the permanent foundation When you're locked out of your house, a key is a wonderful thing. And so too your friends need transparent friends, ready to share the only key that unlocks life for them and can lead them from bearing it to delighting. And so that's not merely our work, friends. That's our privilege, opening people's eyes by God's grace with this gospel to what is truly there to offer our friends songs of salvation where there was only enduring and grumbling and 
misdirected striving. Our fear of men, fearing bad responses that never eventuate, listening to that voice in our head that says, no, don't share the gospel, don't say something, don't sow a seed. Such fears and self-talk prevent us from a transparent Christianity that would bless our friends immeasurably. That voice in our head may be stopping you far more than anyone else is stopping you, if you're like me. But as Spurgeon says, as a Christian, you should be courageous and bold like Christ, never blushing or being ashamed of your faith. For your profession of faith in him will never disgrace you. So take care you never disgrace it. If you are here, in person or online, still exploring Christianity, welcome. God has brought you to this point of listening to this, not by accident. You may have been trying to raise kids for many years without reference at all to God, the source of wisdom for that parenting, or trying to be a successful person without knowing God's definition of success. Trying to live a happy life while unaware that there's an inexhaustible supply and source of happiness. You might be the nicest person with a chest covered with achievement medals. But verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. First principles, first step for a life well lived. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Friends, hallelujah can flow from us as we learn to be less guarded, less afraid, less timid, to cease expecting the worst in our conversations, sharing the Lord with our friends. I don't personally feel I can be a great evangelist, but I do feel I can care about people and listen well to them and share honestly of the difference God has made to me in my life and in my struggles. People generally appreciate this, not resent it. God is very, very good for us and for the lost we love. We don't have to speak to them with our battle gear on, worried we're offending them. We can just approach the world and our friends with transparency and love. There's a Christian psychologist giving a guest lecture at uh, the college I was lecturing in at SNBC and shared one of the most powerful tonics for anxiety, that is listening to fear, she defined it, for anxiety and depression. She urged us to spend 30 minutes a day in what she called the throne room of God. And so if life is a struggle, if it's not a struggle, but particularly when life feels like a struggle, spend 30 unhurried minutes per day in a passage or passages like Psalm 111 to feed on it, meditate on it, breathe in God's acceptance of you and the givenness of life towards you, his kindness, compassion, goodness, mercy, power, holiness and promises. To be a person who loves to say, Hallelujah. Amen.